Hi, uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Uh, this is your host, Danny, here with Phantom Sessions. Um, I am actually very, very excited uh, about this one. I'm speaking to Vivek uh, uh, Tuari about... I, the Beatles are a big part of my life, so uh, we're talking about... <laughs> can't even get it out. out. Uh, we're talking about uh, the fifth Beatle. Uh, the Brian Epstein story, and I have the amazing writer behind it, uh, Vivek. How you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just uh, want to go ahead and uh, pick your brain a little bit here, and then uh, really uh, dive into um, you know what this is all about, um, and what we can expect from the uh, 10th year anniversary. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, just to get the started, uh, just to warm us up, if, if you had to pick, uh, you know, your top three Beatles songs, which <laughs> ones would they be? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I get asked this question a lot, and um, and I, I think it's a little bit of an unfair question because there's there's so <laughs> many great songs and that the so so many different eras of the Beatles where where the songs are so different. So what I'm going to say is the the song that I think represents me the best, as opposed to necessarily my favorite, because I think I. At different points in my life, I've had different favorites, but um, but with a little help from my friends, has a very special place in my heart. Um, I, I won't uh, won't go down a depressing rabbit hole, but um, <laughs> I lost my parents at a very young age. I'm an only child. I had some tough knocks growing up, and um, and I always managed to get by with a lot of help from my friends. So uh, so that song in particular has been a bit of a mantra in my life. So if I had to pick one, that would be number one. Nice. Um, and, uh, I also love a day in the life and I know we'll talk about Brian Epstein, you know, who's the subject of, of the fifth Beatle, but, you know, one of the predictions Brian made, he, when he discovered the band in 1961 was that the Beatles were going to elevate pop music into an art form mm -hmm. and people sort of laughed at him. And they said, what does that even mean? And, uh, and he readily admitted, like, I don't really know how to describe what that means. And in 1967, when the Beatles recorded A Day in the Life, he said that that's what I meant. Uh, <laughs> so that was the song that proved that the that pop music could be elevated into an art form. So uh, so that one also has um, a very special place in my heart. And after that, it's, it is really hard to sort of <laughs> heard. Um, but uh, but um, sort of a, a, potentially this might sound random, um, but Oh Darling is a particular favorite of mine. That's a good one. A little bit perhaps of a of a of a deep cut, um, <laughs> but you know I the the you know I was born in seventy three, so I didn't really grow up with the Beatles the way my parents did. You know mm. I grew up with a lot of punk rock and hardcore, and I grew up in New York City in the Lower East Side, and um, and I actually believe, and this is for another conversation um but i believe that the the seeds of punk rock were sown with oh darlin um if you go back and listen to that song and listen to the vocal performance it is fierce and yeah. i think it sort of predates uh the sex pistols and the ramones and and uh and winds its way to my chemical romance so oh darlin <laughs> has a has a particular uh fondness for in both my heart and in my my nerdy music brain um so <laughs> that, yeah there you go <laughs> that is awesome and i just uh again uh then we'll dive into this but uh how does one go from marketing and managing video promotion for mercury uh polygram and then working closely with uh, mtv and vh1 uh to pr uh producing multiple 
successful Broadway shows uh, to settling down and writing a graphic novel? You know, it's funny. I, I have looked back on my career. You know, I turned 50 this year and I sort of really looked back on my life. And, and you know, in a, in a micro from a micro perspective, it does feel a little bit all over the place. Like, how did you jump from this to this to that to producing musicals to writing graphic novels? It might seem a little all over the place. And there definitely have been moments in my career where I've looked back and I've thought, God, I just I, I maybe I should have just doubled down and just did that one thing, just focused on video promotion and become the very best at that. Um but uh, but there, you know, I, I realized two things. Like one is that I've always followed my passion. That's the easy answer to your question. It's like, how, how does one do that? For me, it was just following what I was passionate about. And I would discover something that became a new passion or, and so I would, would follow that. Um, so that, that's really the short answer. The, the longer answer is, as I look back on all these things, it, it all of a sudden, now that I'm 50, it doesn't feel so <laughs> random. I, I realize that in many ways, I'm a storyteller. And uh, that's, that's the heart of what I think I do. And I'm a history nerd. And I'm a music nerd, like we were just saying, right? Yeah. And, um, and I'm a very visual person. And if you think about it that way, all of those things fit into that box somewhere, you know, getting my start working for record labels, working in the A&R departments and alternative marketing departments and getting to work with young bands and what at the time was considered alternative music, uh, you know, now, now alternative is kind of mainstream, but, you know, so that was about, you know, following bands that I think were doing really artistic things. And, and that was a passion. And then that was like creating new history, believing that these bands would be historic and then video promotion, which obviously is very a, a visual medium. And then right. into Broadway with which is both live and visual and graphic novels. You know, I think the fifth Beatle is very cinematic. Uh, you know, I, I did not write it uh, to, in, in order to make a, a film or TV show, even though we're talking about adaptations. Um, you know, I'm a huge comic lover. And I think why I love part of why I love the medium of comics is that it is a very vi visual and cinematic medium. So really, like, again, I, I know I'm, it's sort of a <laughs> long rambling answer to your question, but I, I think I just have always believed that the story and the music are the most important things in anything that I've done. And all the other things are trappings. All the other things are, are, are tools in order to tell a story through music. And, and, and if you look at it that way, all of those things that I've done, done, you know, sort of have led to where I am now. I hope that made sense. It made sense to me, <laughs> especially someone who reads a lot of comics. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, look, and and for me, I will say that it all really starts with comics for me. Um, you know, I, I often say that I think I learned to read by reading comics. My, my earliest memories of reading are are reading Tintin and Asterix with my mom. Uh, <laughs> so so you know, it, for me, comics were were the ground zero for art um, and 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 artistic pursuits and the 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 idea of telling stories in creative ways. It all came from comics for me. Nice. I love it. Really writing a comic in the fifth Beatle was, was, you know, the culmination or of a lifelong dream. I mean, it really was. That's amazing. Thanks. <laughs> and, and also, um, I was watching your Ted talk. So, um, I know you kind of, uh, explained this, but what was it like and how did you conduct your research, uh, for Brian Epstein? Yeah. So, you know, I found myself in business school in the early nineties and, 
um, you know, I was really just uh, trying to be a, a, a good, a good kid. Uh, a good <laughs> you know, I, uh, I decided I didn't want to be a doctor or an engineer, which is what young people of Indian origin who are presented with some opportunities at the time were expected to do. So if I wasn't going to do that, then I was going to join my family business, um, which is sprawling, but food products and financial securities and things that I'm also not particularly interested in. <laughs> That's how I found myself at business school. And, you know, what I was dreaming was a life in the arts. And I, I dreamed of managing bands. That was, I wanted that to be the first thing I did. Um, and I did do that for a, for a hot minute. Uh, unlike <laughs> Brian Epstein, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I will readily admit it was really hard. And I, couldn't, <laughs> I, I, could, I, I, I didn't have the success I wanted with it. Um, but anyway, so I found myself in business school dreaming about this and realizing that uh, the Wharton School of Business in 1991 didn't have resources for students who wanted to pursue uh, a career in the business of the arts. They do now, but they didn't back then. And so I had to do this research on my own and believing that the Beatles and Brian were the team that wrote and then rewrote the rules of the pop music business, I thought I should study the life of Brian Epstein. And you know, this is at a time when there's no Wikipedia, there's no YouTube, there's no Google, you know, there are none of these online resources that we mm -hmm. take for granted. So, and, and there are no books about Brian Epstein in the market. The Fifth Beatle, you know, e even to this day, even with the 10th anniversary coming, um, it's the only book, graphic novel or otherwise, dedicated to Brian Epstein um, the, in print. Uh, and so there were no books that I could find. And um, <laughs> I had to do re uh, interviews. So I read every Beatles book that I could get my hands on. And I'd read these like, you know, 200, 300, 400 page books about the Beatles that might have 10 or 15 pages about Brian uh, within them, pages that I now know were full of half-truths or complete misinformation. But what they did do was they painted a picture for me of the people who knew him best. And so I was at school in Philadelphia. I lived in New York City. So I literally just um, pulled out a phone book. You know, back then we had phone books, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like this big, huge volume. And I pulled them off the shelf and I cold called people um, within driving distance who knew Brian, friends, colleagues, former uh, work uh, buddies, enemies, people who didn't like him, <laughs> you know, everybody I could think of who, who might have a story to tell. And um, and I just cold called them and said, I'm a student looking for inspiration. I, at the time, I wasn't writing a graphic novel or screenplays or anything like that. I just really wanted, wanted knowledge and, and inspiration. And not one of them turned me down. You know, people who, um, like Peter Brown, uh, who everyone said, oh, Peter wrote a book about the Beatles, The Love You Bake, and and that's, that's you know, he doesn't do Beatles interviews and he won't talk to you, like, just be prepared for that. And Peter called me back in 20 minutes. And, wow. has, and has now become one of my dear friends and is a huge supporter of the Fifth Beatle. And so, you know, I just found that that sometimes you just need to ask, you know, and that's what I did. I asked and uh, and they said yes. And that's how I really did most of my research was through personal one-on-one -on -one interviews. And, and I think that's how I got to the heart of it because initially I wanted business stories. As I said, I was mm -hmm. a business student who wanted case studies to as a, on a path to a career in the arts. I will admit, I didn't care about Brian's personal life. That's not what I was trying to get information on. But these people eventually they said they started telling me once they realized that they could trust me and that I, you know, wore my heart on my sleeves. Um, you know, they said, look, if you really want to know what made Brian tick, you know, you have to understand his personal life. The fact mm -hmm. that he's gay at a time where it was literally against the law, that he was Jewish at a time of pervasive anti-Semitism. 
Um, obviously, the you know that this has been a, a terrible week with the terrorist attacks in Israel, and so we yeah. we are seeing that that is still a problem to this day. Um, but but in Brian's time, it was a it was a pervasive way of life in the UK, and um, and uh, and he was also from Liverpool. Yeah. And, early 1960s before the Beatles Liverpool isn't a place where anyone is uh is looking for the next big musical thing so Brian is a gay Jewish 26 year old kid running around a dirty port town in the north of England saying I found a local rock and roll band who are going to be bigger than Elvis who as we were saying <laughs> earlier are going to elevate pop music into an art form you know people laughed at him they said those dreams are stupid and people like you don't do things like that right so I found myself you know, just circling back to, I know I'm kind of all over the place here, but circling <laughs> back to the the heart of your question, you know, I when I found myself a young Indian kid who didn't want to be a doctor or an engineer, who dreamed of a life in the arts, you know, I kept thinking, God, well, if the gay Jewish kid from Liverpool could bring the world the Beatles, like, why couldn't a weirdo Indian kid, child of immigrants from the Lower East Side, write comic books and produce musicals? You know, the, the Brian Epstein story taught me to follow my dreams. And, and I always say, if there's one message to this book, to The Fifth Beetle, it's that no dream is too impossible and no person too unlikely to realize that dream. So so that for me is why is why Brian is The Fifth Beetle. That's why, I, to me, he'll always be The Fifth Beetle. And, um, you know, that again, a long, 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 <laughs> babbling answer to your question. Um, but it is, uh, you know, it seems like a simple question, but it, but it's there, there's a lot of a lot of emotion behind it for me. So thanks for indulging me. Yeah, you have to get in in depth, you know, behind it just to understand everything that's going on, picking your brain and how the story actually came to life. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And well, you actually question, uh, answered my other question um, since you <laughs> said uh, you wanted to go into the arts. So that that cuts that out, but that's OK. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what that's what I get for babbling too much. <laughs> oh, you're good. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I still got plenty more, I promise. All right, bring them on. I'm ready. <laughs> what went through your head when you uh, got the news that uh, your graphic novel was going to be inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, Library and Archives? And, you know, it's funny if you, you know, it's the 10 year anniversary of, of the book, um, you know, uh, this, with the, this new new anniversary edition coming out in November. And so I'm looking back on 10 years and and honestly, if you were to sort of like Google old interviews and look back at my old tweets, you will see so often like dream come true. This was a dream come true. You know, like, yeah, like the, I just published a comic book. I just got nominated for an Eisner. I just like, you know, so many dreams come true through this book. And that one in particular was um was quite was quite flabbergasting, you know. <laughs> the kid that that grew up as I as I was saying in the Lower East Side, you know, standing online at CBGBs to attend hardcore matinees on a Sunday afternoon, you know, I never dreamed that I would would be even adjacent to to a life in music, much less. Um, you know, have worked on something that that was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, I I literally didn't think that was possible. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't know that there was a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame library and archives. Um, you know, I thought, <laughs> yes, yeah, performer. You, you, you know, but but uh, so anyway, it, it was a, it was it was um, it felt like I was being punked. Let me, let me <laughs> put it that way. I, it was hard. hard to that, you know, yeah. yeah. And you know, um, did you ever 
expect or did you ever think that um this graphic novel would just take off the way it's taken off um you know receiving multiple awards and nominations and again go inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame it's a good question you know i i have i will it's it's a it so you know yes and no is really the honest answer to the question like i never when i put this book out 10 years ago in my wildest dreams would have imagined that it would have won these awards and been, as we were just saying, you know, added to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Library and Archives. You know, I got an email from Paul McCartney saying that wow. he liked the book and and congratulating me on it and complimenting Andrew Robinson on his art. Like that was another moment where I thought I was being punked. You know, <laughs> I, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that. So so that is true. I, I certainly wouldn't for a second want to be arrogant enough to suggest that I saw any of that coming or took it for granted or expected it. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> however, I do believe that the Brian Epstein story is a timeless one. You know, mm -hmm. yes, it's a Beatles story, but I think really it's an inspiring human story. I don't think you have to be a Beatles fan or even a music fan um, to, to love this book and, and its message of chasing your dreams. I think that's a, a basic human story. And yeah. so I, I felt that the story was timeless so I really did believe in my heart of hearts that the book would be around 10 years later and that there would still be interest in it. You know, in publishing terms, that's called an evergreen, you know, <laughs> always have some sort of a market and some sort of an audience. So I, I did believe that I was arrogant, arrogant enough to believe that 10 years after its publication, it would still be in print and mm -hmm. somebody would still want to buy it. But I didn't believe we would be putting out an anniversary edition with a soundtrack playlist and a, a new introduction by Pearl Jam's manager yeah, and cover by inspiring artists that I love. You know, in uh, Chris Brunner and Enrico Renzi are amazing. And to get them to work on a new cover, um, you know, it's just that that I never dreamed was going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah. So I have the um, the fifth year anniversary behind as my background right now. If you can see it, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So with the ten year being released uh, in November, um, what extras can we expect aside from what you just uh, mentioned? Yeah, so that that's the heart of it. The the main thing that I'm I'm really excited about is this soundtrack playlist. You know, it, it is a music story, and in my head. Um, I had very much written to, with, with music in mind. In fact, um, if you were to talk to Andrew Robinson and Kyle Baker, the core artists on it, they will tell you that the script had music cues in it, like a film script would, and um, and you know it, that it did that it influenced their art. Uh, Kyle Baker's "Chaos in the Philippines" section was set to the song "Help." And so, you know, really, in a lot of ways, it sounds so cheesy to say this. The book is being finally presented in the format I always dreamed of. But it's true because <laughs> it's got at the beginning the playlist. It has a QR code so that you can link to the playlist um, through Spotify or, or whatever uh, digital service provider you use for your music. It has 16 songs in it that are not just Beatles songs. I won't I won't give it all away, but there's, you know, everything from Bauhaus to the Stone Roses to Rufus Wainwright to Amon Tobin. Um, and of course, lots of Beatles, um, <laughs> you know, that, that to me is the thing that I'm most excited about is being able to present the book in a format where it will literally, uh, have songs that you can listen to while, while you read it. So that's really exciting. Um, it has a new introduction by Pearl Jam's manager, Kelly Curtis, who has also been a huge inspiration to me. 
And um, I became friends with him recently. And, and I, it turned out unsurprisingly that Brian was also an inspiration to him. Um, nice. So I'm, that, it's a really lovely uh, new introduction that he's written for us. It has a brand new cover um, by Chris Brunner and Rico Renzi, two amazing artists. Um, you know, Rico is probably, um, you know, having a particularly exciting moment because he uh, is credited as one of the creators of Spider-Gwen. He worked as a colorist on Spider-Gwen and, you know, she, she's she's very much in the, in the public eye through it, through the Into the Spider-Verse film. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, Chris and Rico have done amazing work together. And, uh, and I think the new cover that they've done brings sort of a fresh um, new life to the story. But also when you see it, it, it pays very clear homage to Andrew Robinson's work. Um, Chris actually was referred to us by Andrew. Andrew nice. said, Chris to do the new cover. So, so he comes with, uh, with Andrew's endorsement and, um, and, you know, he's a big, uh, Andrew was really inspiring to Chris. So I'm excited about, about that. Um, we have a new and expanded sketchbook section. Uh, as you may know from the previous um, expanded edition, uh, Andrew Robinson and Kyle Baker chimed in with some, some new materials. So this section has Chris and Rico, our new artists, also chiming in with some expanded sketchbook materials. Um, and those are sort of the core new elements. Uh, along with the soundtrack, I put a um, a liner notes is what I call them uh, together. As you can tell by talking to me, I, I babble too much and I'm very <laughs> dorky and academic. So every song choice that I had had a dorky academic reason why I chose it. Um, so there's like an essay, what what I'm calling liner notes um, that explain <laughs> that explain the soundtrack. So, um, so those are those are the core new features, and I'm I'm really really excited about getting them out into the world. Um, without wanting to slight any of my fellow comics creators or or the publishers, I guess I should say, you know, sometimes I see anniversary editions that you know don't really have any particular <laughs> new materials in it, and and just uh, you know are are a way for us fans to spend an extra dollar on a collectible, <laughs> and uh, and I will will guarantee you. Uh, if there are any old fans out there, this is not that. You will find new stuff in here that are that is fresh and exciting and quite a bit of it. Um, so, yeah, I hope there you go. Oh, I'm definitely going to have to pick up this one just for the liners notes, just to see, <laughs> you know, why the reasons behind the songs and, Thanks. you know, in that certain area. So that's awesome. Um, how did you uh, shop around your... Um, uh, your idea to different publishers and then um, eventually got picked up by Dark Horse. Um, how did that process work out? It's really interesting because, you know, I came from a real DIY background, a do-it-yourself background. You know, I, before I started my own company 24 years ago, I did work for record labels. I was at Sony Music Distribution. I was at Atlantic Records and I was at Mercury Records. So I did work for the big record labels. But even while I was there, I worked for their alternative in the alternative marketing divisions with bands like the Cardigans and 311, the Mighty Mighty Boston's. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, you know, when I was a kid, I, I came out of, you know, I went to, I was very much part of the hardcore scene. And these are all bands and scenes that that are used to doing it yourself. You're, even if they eventually got signed to a major, they got started by putting out their own records, printing their own flyers, booking their own tours, sort of really doing it yourself. And in theater, which is another world I'm very deep in, that's what you do. You like raise the money for your show, you you, you cast it, you hire the, the director and the writer and you just do it yourself. You know, there aren't studios the, the where there are film studios in the Broadway industry, which is the yeah. industry I came out of. So when I decided that I wanted to write a graphic novel about Brian Epstein, we just did it. Like I just, you know, 
raised the money. I, I, I financed it myself. I just saved up for it. I found Andrew Robinson and he loved the idea and agreed to do it for far less than, uh, than his usual rate would be because he <laughs> loved the project and loved the Beatles and, um, and ditto on Kyle Baker, who I've known for, you know, Kyle and I are both New Yorkers and he also grew up with the Beatles and was excited to work on it. So I basically just like, you know, we were, we were making it ourselves. We were not going around pitch. We never once pitched the idea to a publisher. We just started doing it. I started writing a script and they started um, drawing art. And our intention was to finish the book. We never were going to publish it ourselves, but we were going to finish the book and, and then find a publisher with a fully delivered book. Um, word got out that we were doing it. Um, I had not written a graphic novel before, but Andrew and Kyle obviously were, were hugely well-respected and award-winning comic book artists. And it's the Beatles, which already always pricks ears. So all of a sudden, the publishers really started calling us. They said, we hear you're uh -huh. doing a Beatles-related project. We'd love to take a look. And I was in the wonderful situation where I was able to say, I wasn't playing hardball. I was being honest. I was like, we're not really looking for a publisher, but sure, I'd love, you know, absolutely. Mm -hmm. here, here are the 10 pages that we've, that we were about 10 pages in. And, um, and as I said, everyone, we were very blessed with interest from all the, the major publishers and the major independents and Dark Horse just made a lot of sense. Um, Mike Richardson was a huge Beatles fan and he's the, you know, the head and publisher of Dark Horse, founder of Dark Horse. And so um, we just were really happy with them as a home, um, that, uh, which is not a slight on any of the, uh, actually it was, it was a really tough decision because, um, because wow. <laughs> everybody had, had some, some, uh, degree of love for this project and the Beatles, but, uh, but really we, we went with Dark Horse cause they were the most passionate. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. That's amazing. And so now that the writer's strike is over, uh -huh. um, I did see some rumors buzzing online. Uh, while I was looking uh, looking information up for the book, um, there's a rumor that uh, this is slated for a uh, TV series. Oh, gosh, I wish I could tell you more. Uh, uh, but uh, <laughs> but I, I will say that now that the strikes are over, we can kind of get back to work on on the, the adaptation of, of The Fifth Beatle. Um, there is still an actor strike. Uh, so that's also causing a, a little bit of, uh, of turmoil uh, for the adaptation. But um, but I will say I am still very passionate about seeing this at either film or television. But I, I can't say more than that uh, at the moment. But just know that it is still uh, very much in the works. And um, some depending on which rumors you're listening to, <laughs> some of the rumors are true. Let me let me just say that. Okay. <laughs> that <laughs> and uh we don't break ndas here so don't worry <laughs> well i appreciate that i appreciate that <laughs> look i've also always tried and with with my career in general to not really say anything until it's really real you know and the entertainment this industry is so full of uh reports of like in talks with or you know so and so is attached to or it's like what does that really mean in talks right. with or you know so I really want to just like, I'd rather tell you like, hey, this is what we're doing and it's coming out on this platform or you'll be able to see it in these theaters on this day. You know, I'd rather let you know when when it's really real. So so for now, let me just uh, tease that some of the rumors are true. <laughs> okay. And I respect that. So thank you. I appreciate that. And you kind of did uh, brush this over earlier, but I uh, want to go ahead and uh, just jump back a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, 
if you could give yourself uh your younger self any piece of information what or uh, i'm sorry information uh any piece of advice uh what would that advice be oh man you know i uh i will be honest i um I would, if I, I'm going to not answer your question fairly, because I thought <laughs> about, you know, as I mentioned, I just, I turned 50 recently. So I've thought a lot about, you know, about going back. I lost my parents when they were in their fifties. So I've been thinking about mortality quite a bit. And um, if I could go back, I honestly would, would stay out of that guy's way. You know, like my younger self wouldn't listen to a thing I had to say anyway. So like, <laughs> I wouldn't spend my time talking to him. If I could go back, I would I would sit down with my parents and I would tell them what I've accomplished and I would tell them this wasn't the path they thought I was going to be on, but I would hope that they were proud of what I've done and I would explain to them why I did this. And, you know, my parents loved the arts. My dad was a doctor and my mom was an attorney, so they didn't work in the arts, but they set me on this path. And so so that's what I would do if I could go back. I would I would leave my younger self alone because that punk wouldn't pay, wouldn't want to hear from me anyway, uh, <laughs> and I would sit down with my parents who I think would be uh would 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 be the the people would be the 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 time traveling entity that would really care. So that's what I would do. That's uh that's uh very deep, very heartfelt right there. That's honest. Yeah. Uh, although I'm not answering your question, so I'm sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I am being honest. <laughs> Thank you. Besides, um, you know, just calling everybody, cold calling uh, everybody that you spoke to uh, to get information um, about about Brian Epstein, what um, what would you say were like the toughest um, challenges you faced writing this or working on this book? Um, I mean, that really was was the toughest one. And um, I mean, honestly, that that was kind of the big one was doing the research really i mean after i did the research the rest of it i mean there were so many things that were difficult but they were also very joyful you know as i mentioned i grew up reading comics like i've dreamed about working on comics i had the good fortune of scoring two like unbelievable artists to work with and collaborate with um so you know, yeah, it was difficult writing my first comic script. And I, you know, I, I read, you know, Making Comics and Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud to try to understand the mechanics of it and the Will Eisner books on sequential art. And like, I tried to teach myself the medium and, you know, again, the dorky academic me. Um, so, you know, just understanding how to write a comic script um, in a way that, you know, was going to be useful, additive, not presumptuous, helpful, etc., to these two brilliant writers who serve uh, artists, excuse me, and Kyle and Andrew, who definitely been there and done that, you know, that, that was something that, um, that was not easy, but it was fun. It was joyful, yeah. you know? So, so when, when you say what's been the hardest, I'm like, I don't know, really, you know, <laughs> honestly, it was the research part of the equation and, um, and yeah. And, and when we were working on the, you know, the, the, you, if, if anyone's done a brief Google, uh, they know that we secured music rights um, for a film or TV adaptation. And that was hard. That was just purely a business legal thing that was super difficult. It took three years and I had to get the wow. approval. Paul, Ringo, Yoko, Olivia Harrison, the Beatles camp. I had to do a deal with Sony ATV Music Publishing. It was complicated, difficult emotional, but also, also kind of joyful. Like, you know, that, that was a, you know, I, there were many moments where I took a step back and I was like, oh man, I'm spending my day trying to figure out 
you know, how to get to Paul McCartney and how to get him to, to approve this thing. And, you know, like, how lucky am I that that's my that's my to do list for the day? Um, yeah, <laughs> really, those those were the two hardest things was was getting the research, getting to the heart of the story. Um, and also, you know, one, once we decided to do an adaptation, just just getting sort of the music rights in order. OK. All right. And then so once again, uh, this is the uh, 10th year uh, anniversary for the Brian Epstein story. Um, and uh, once again, it'll be out in November. Um, do you have any uh, any plugs I would like to drop in? Like, can we follow you on social media? Um, do you have any upcoming conventions, any upcoming projects that you can uh, go ahead and talk about? Um, you know, th uh, thank you. You've you've kind of did the the core ones. <laughs> really here to talk about the Fifth Beetle, our ten year anniversary edition coming out on Dark Horse Random House at the end of November. Um, literally 10 years to the date, we put out the original book uh, right before Thanksgiving, 10 years ago. And there's more information about that at fifthbeetle.com. More information on my projects are at tawarient.com. Um, you can find me on both uh, Twitter, or I guess it's X now, um, at, at, at VivekJTawari, and I'm also on Instagram. Um, so please uh, follow me there. I don't post as often as I should, uh, <laughs> busy, but I, uh, I am on those uh, social media sites. I'm on Facebook as well. Um, and in terms of upcoming projects, like th this one is, is the key one. It's been my longtime passion. So I am very focused on that. Um, but I will also say I've been uh, in terms of sort of my, my live show business world, um, I am very involved right now in exploring the crossover of high profile music with cutting edge technologies. Um, and I'm developing a number of projects um, with Industrial Light and Magic, uh, who are best known as a visual effects company, but they also did the um, the technology behind ABBA Voyage. And so we are um, we are pursuing a variety of opportunities that I can't quite talk about yet, but talking to a number of bands about um, about doing projects utilizing um, the technologies that that ILM have developed and uh, and using that as a way to present their music to the world in in new and interesting ways. So I know that probably sounds very esoteric and cryptic, uh, and I can't <laughs> say more about it right now. But um, but that's what I'm I'm really focused on outside of the Fifth Beetle. So thank you. Okay. For yeah, absolutely. I just want to go ahead and say it was a pleasure uh, talking to you today. Um, I hope you have a safe flight. And again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Ah, oh, thank you so much for having me. You asked yeah. awesome questions and and were very patient when I didn't answer all of them <laughs> <laughs> or when I skewed in a different direction. So thank you for letting me be honest and and uh, and for this great conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much.